0: Welcome back, thank you for tuning in, for streaming, for downloading, for subscribing, for rating and for reviewing. This podcast coming up next, I am of course assuming that you're going to be rating and reviewing the show. You can do that via iTunes, via Stitcher or Podbean, however you consume this podcast. It really does help me to continue to bring you amazing guests like my third guest for this week. That's right. Three episodes in one week, Annie Goldson and her story about her amazing documentary Kim.com Caught in the Web, which is screening at MIF. There's another screening coming up this Saturday the 19th at 4pm. You can find all the information on that uh, at miff.com.au. You can also see Annie uh, at the Tech in Cinema Talk, which is tomorrow, Friday the 18th, at the Comedy Theatre. And whilst you are buying tickets to all of those wonderful things, you can go to comingupnext.com.au where you can find all the links to do all the stuff that I said at the start of this little ramble and help me help you and keep bringing amazing content to you every week. When When you moved from New Zealand to New York, um, you mentioned that you, um, you taught yourself the craft of filmmaking. I guess from there, how did you kind of launch into a career as a documentary filmmaker?
1: Well, really um, by slow growth in a sense. And it's never been something that I've thought was going to be viable as a career career. So I've always taught as well. And in some ways I've always liked academic thought. So I've had a kind of dual career as a, an academic and a filmmaker. And luckily for me, increasingly, the Academy began to accept documentary as kind of proper research. Um, so I was kind of fortunate in terms of timing. But I have kept up writing and publishing too because I, I feel that kind of feeds into my film work as well. Um, but also it's been handy because it's... Pretty hard to live as a producer director of your work, um, you know, unless you're really producing stuff for television, fast turnaround television. Mm. Do
0: you remember it, growing up? Was um, was there kind of a natural propensity towards storytelling or anything like that in your kind of household? Was there?
1: Not particularly. No, it was. Um, I think what there was was there was quite a lot of compassion for the world you know my my father actually was a doctor and my mother was a social worker and we were very much you know told that our we should use our fortune for the betterment of others sort of thing I mean that was very much the ethic of the household Um, so I think that that has certainly nurtured the political side of me Mm. Um, but we weren't a particularly cultural household at all so I'm not quite sure where that comes from although I find it quite odd i've we've had someone I've never known that much about my extended family um, and I've got this cousin who suddenly decided to do the family tree thing and I find I'm quite a close relationship to I've got quite a close like cousin who's John Pilger's camera person which uh-huh. I thought was quite interesting <laughs> <laughs> because he's worked in quite similar countries that I've worked in so that was a a strange biological connection, but I mean, we were—we were. We were um, education was always emphasised in the household, so probably sort of compassion and, and education were kind of the twin influences, but not particularly cultured. No.
0: Mm. Do you remember the first time? You know, you, you were a journalist before you were a documentary filmmaker. Do you remember the first time? That you, that you created something, um, perhaps as a journalist or as a document, as, as a filmmaker, um, that kind of really gave you that love and that passion?
1: I really liked being a journalist and I was lucky because I w- went into current affairs quite quickly so I really had to sort of drill down and you know think through and make sense and make story out of raw material which I always really enjoyed. I sort of, although I like directing, I quite like the post-production process, you know, finding the stories and finding the meaning and that kind of sense of craft. Um, I think the first documentaries that I really made that I was, that were more recognisable as documentary, I had worked more experimentally, which was kind of en vogue in in New York at the time, so I was more doing like experimental video, etc., But then we did a series, interestingly, called Counter-Terror. And the premise of that was looking at how what we call the discourse of terrorism was being used to criminalise political dissent. And this was in the 1980s, so it was a long time before 9-11. But you just saw emerging, particularly in American political discourse and media discourse, the emergence of the sort of terrorist as the the baddie that was going to supplant the communist sort of thing. So we tried to work with communities that had been labeled terrorist which was pretty full-on mm. um so i ended up working with the black panther party with um radical latin american independentistas wow with a group of lebanese i worked in northern ireland so that was um that was a and it was a four-part series that was a couple of the films were successful the other two are a bit loose <laughs> <laughs> um
0: what was the what was the process then of, of establishing your narrative and then seeing that through to completion and I suppose how has that evolved in a way over the years?
1: Well I think you do tend to have a premise going in right you have an idea and I often think to myself but also say to my students that ideas are everywhere but they're only going to have currency at certain times or they will have more currency at certain times so um, you know audience will have audiences will want to have to watch them you know funders may want to have to fund them so they're going to have to fulfill certain conditions in a sense to be realized as films and I still think that's the process that I sort of intuitively now recognize I suddenly think aha you know this could actually be a film and with the Kim.com film it was really watching the raid you know when the FBI and the New Zealand police raided Kim.com it was just very very theatrical and felt very contrived in a New Zealand context, so I thought there has to be a lot more going on here, and sure enough, there was. Mm. Um, But it's those moments that you kind of recognize as having the potential to be something that's quite in-depth, you know, so it might be just a news story or something you stumble across that you suddenly think that would be a really great idea. You know, and that's the fun, but then there's like three years of slog (laughs) after that. (laughs) Until it comes out the other end. Yeah. Mm.
0: So what was your, um, I I guess, your pathway from making the the counter-terrorist series um, through to starting to make uh, feature-length documentaries and continuing your academic work?
1: Well, what I found in New York is I realised... I mean, I gravitated back to university because I didn't like working in commercials. You know, I find it hard to do a job that I'm not passionate about. Um, and I know that's a luxury, but it was something I was determined to try and do. So, um, so I did go back to university and I got a master's and then a PhD. And I, got, I started to teach, and so this kind of teaching filmmaking became the kind of thing that I did I first of all taught at Brown University in the US which was um, you know it's a very elite institution in Ivy League but that, that means that you're quite free to teach certain things so I was able to teach both production and theory so I continued to do that when I came back to New Zealand in the mid 90s at Auckland University where I currently teach and the first big film I made in New Zealand actually is a film that remains quite resonant in Australia, I think, Punitive Damage. It was an East Timor story, and I know Australia has that link with East Timor. Um, So that, in a sense, the funding context is quite different in the US than it is in New Zealand. I mean, in the US, there tends to be money from philanthropists because there's a lot of wealthy people probably getting tax relief. (laughs) And then there is, you know various state and federal funding agencies whereas New Zealand it's much more industry-based it's you know either the film commission or broadcast television um so in a sense you have to be both almost more ambitious in New Zealand because you're going to make something that has a bigger audience you know has to fulfill more probably stricter criteria in terms of delivery and so forth so um but I had a certain doggedness that I think I'd developed in New York where you do get bits of money and then you just carry on until you finish something, and it can take quite a long time. So I, I bought a certain doggedness to this first big project, Punitive Damage. So so that was a feature film, and it did very well at festivals. I mean, I was fortunate in that East Timor changed at the very time i just released the film. There was the referendum called, so I felt like I was on this great tide of history in a way and there was a lot of there was a lot of hunger to know what the real history of East Timor was I don't know if you saw the film but it followed a, um, a lawsuit a young Kiwi activist was shot and killed in the Delhi Massacre in 1991 and his mother brought her a, um, a lawsuit out against a particular general um, so I sort of met her and followed the lawsuit and she did it not only to shed light on her son's instance and her own loss, but also, the, you know, the fate of East Timor at that time um, under Indonesian rule. So um, that was quite a full-on experience. Mm, and can um, Yeah, yeah, and it was a very affecting. And at that point, I decided, you know, when you're in New York, you're sort of part of this kind of New York subculture where no one really asks where you're from and everyone's more or less struggling along. Mm. But when I came back to New Zealand, I felt much more grounded in the sort of Asia-Pacific, and I decided that's really where I wanted to work, So, and particularly around human rights issues. That's kind of what I gravitated towards for you know, most of my career.
0: What is it about human rights that you, you're so passionate? I mean, it's a fairly dull question in one sense, but yeah. for you, yeah. what, is, what is the kind of thrust of that?
1: I just think I've always had quite a strong sense of social justice and, you know, just looking at how people have to exist sometimes and, you know, thinking about the historical context and, you know, relative privilege and exploitation yeah. and things. They're just things that get me fired up.
0: Must be pretty fired up most of the time at the moment.
1: Well, I know. I mean, I was actually in this gorgeous hotel here and I was just watching CNN and hearing about this terrible Charlottesville thing.
0: Mm. That's pretty horrible.
1: Yeah, I know it really is. It
0: just feels like, uh, like you kind of just leapt back a hundred years in in uh, in progress.
1: Well, I had the strange experience on the plane. I watched Selma coming over, so which was really sort of early in the morning to be watching a film like that. So yeah. i seemed to go from <laughs> Selma to the CNN coverage, and right? Yeah, it's been no, a heavy day for you. Very disturbing, though. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, I sometimes wonder of those guys, if they really did suffer, what they would be like. Mm. You know, these ones that sort of seem to feel so displaced somehow. Yeah. When I mean, they all look pretty well fed to me. Yeah. <laughs> pretty well <laughs> sheltered as <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so Punitive Damage was an important film. And, you know, I guess other films have rolled out since then. No, they're quite varied, but quite often I come back to that kind of human rights sorts of issues. Although human rights itself is an interesting term, it sort of I think it quite kind of replaced left wing after the left sort of fell apart, and human rights became a an umbrella term, Mm, really
0: for peace and harmony. And
1: yeah, and it's a complex term because no one says they're against human rights. Yeah, probably even Donald Trump wouldn't say that. So it's a bit of an elastic term.
0: Right. Yeah, because what's the counter?
1: Yeah. Mm. Mm.
0: Um, I guess circling back to your career and and coming back to um, Kim.com playing at at MIF as well, what's what's the process for you? you know in terms of identifying an idea you mentioned the uh, the the Mm. notion of ideas and that they're Mm. everywhere and Mm. they only have currency at certain times what was the the uh, the thinking for you of of hooking into this idea of of creating a documentary telling the story of this guy who by and large appears to be just a, a, a big time criminal
1: Well, as I say, when I saw the raid and the militarisation of the raid, I found that quite disturbing in a New Zealand context because we don't—that doesn't usually happen. We don't, you know, we have a few gangs, but we don't really have drug barons and things Mm. like that. So it just felt like Mexico or, or, you know, some other country. And I think partly I'm—I was—I'm interested in distribution and film distribution because I've made a lot of films, as you know. Some of them have been. A lot of them have been critically successful. Some have been quite commercially successful. But I've never been able to make any money off my films. So I was curious about distribution and why it doesn't seem to work for artists and creatives. And, you know, that's part of my motivation behind the film. How can we develop a system where creative people can support themselves and be rewarded? Because whereas I don't support infringement, I don't think the traditional distribution structures work for artists and creatives very well either you know except for a very small handful so trying to think of ways of sort of nurturing that sector and I think to me the internet has that potential so I guess the question becomes how can you unlock that potential without you know massive infringement um But then when more I thought about it, so that was partly probably what sparked my interest, because I was never really a mega upload user. Um, But also when I, you know, that that sort of sparked my interest, the raid sparked my interest, the involvement of the FBI, and then when I started to sort of drill down more into the story, there were so many things like the illegal spying that went on, issues around privacy and surveillance in the internet age, questions around sov- sovereignty and militarization since 9-11, you know, the massive build-up of certainly the surveillance state, but also these kinds of alliances that it doesn't seem to be in democratic countries we've had much say over. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the, at heart of it, as they say, questions around distribution and the digital age. You know, how do we share not just entertainment but also knowledge and I feel that in the university context as well as sort of in the broader field of entertainment. You know, who gets access to knowledge? Because it seems to be increasingly ring-fenced, which seems ironic in the age of... Because you, you basically wrap the world in a giant copying machine and then tell people not to share files, mm. which is kind of what we like doing, probably. You know, talking to friends, showing friends things. And as I say, I'm not supporting infringement but i can understand the impulse to build communities to build fan circles and even within academia i find it strange because you know i write something a big publisher will publish it and i'm not allowed to distribute that published version to anyone because i'd be breaking copyright even though i wrote it and got no money for it yeah You know, and I do that and get published because that's good for my academic career. So there just seems to be lots of ways that we're ring-fencing knowledge, scientific knowledge, social sciences, humanities. Yeah, and not sharing it with people outside certain circles. So when you think about it, you know, to buy something legally, if you're a student living in India, maybe making $15 a month, it's going to be hard to pay 9.99 for some equivalent box set. Yeah. When it's available on the street. So I figure there are three conditions that lead to infringement. One is the income of the people, another is the cost of legal versions, and the other one is the availability of reproducible technologies. And if those three things exist, I think, you know, infringement happens. And I think there could be business models set up you know, making stuff available, making it cheap enough, making it good quality, bringing it out at the same time. I think there are models that could be followed.
0: Mm. I th- I, know, I think the um, the film presents such a compelling story that when I was watching it, anyway, I felt like at in at the beginning, kind of wondering who this sort of criminal guy is but by the end of the film i felt like i was completely on his side so there's this amazing construction where you've presented a really kind of evenly handed sort of account of his life and his story how do you set about constructing a film because you know um i was just discussing in another interview that um documentaries when done well can appear as though they're just unfolding in front of the camera but there's so much work that goes into constructing the story writing the script and there's so much this is told over you know a number of decades as well so how what what's your process in constructing this sort of story
1: Well I always had quite a strong sense and I think one thing I've learned and it's particularly probably my scripting process in a sense you know because I have a family and because I have a job I can't just say goodbye everyone and go (laughs) off and just film something you know in an observational way for years yeah you know so I always feel I have a sort of narrative structure I'm aware of Um, although of course then once you start filming things happen that you don't expect you can't predict Um, but I always felt with the Kim.com film he's got to me such a compelling narrative and you know living in New Zealand which is such a small country he's such a big personality I mean, he's almost entered the lexicon in terms of just familiarity. Yeah, right. Um, so I felt there was a sort of compelling backstory, and I could use that narrative drive to look at these other issues that I feel are really important and, in a sense, exceed Kim.com as a personality. So, um, but it was a really hard edit. I mean, we had just so much footage, so much court footage, so much archive. The issues are also in depth. I had such brilliant interviews with very clever people from all over the world. It was really, really hard edit, and you know I worked with a great editor, Simon Coldrick. Um, but in a sense, we did follow a script structure. I always knew I would finish it after the first extradition hearing, because I also knew there would be appeals and counter appeals and. I thought that that would kind of future proof the film because you can always do a little caption at the end and say there was an appeal and then a counter appeal, etc. Um, and I knew I wanted to look at his backstory because I had some knowledge of him as a sort of one of the early hackers, Dr. Kimball. I mean, there's something about Kim's humor. As I say, it's not that I've, um, you know, making money to me is not the thing I respect hugely in life. But there's something about Kim's humour and his chutzpah his determination to stand up to very sort of powerful people that makes him interesting and he does it kind of with a sense of humour.
0: Mm, there's, there's that moment uh, early on where um, he's talking about what his peers at, at school wanted to do when they were growing up and he said, you know, some wanted to be firemen and some wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to be a millionaire. It's quite a poignant kind of... uh, I've completely lost my words. Mm, mm. Um, It's quite a poignant thing for him to kind of express and to share.
1: That's right, especially when you do know his backstory. You can, you know, without getting too psychologizing, you can see what motivates him in a sense.
0: Mm. So... I mean, what was it like to, to interview him, to sit down with someone who rarely gives interviews, who has created such chaos in a kind of um, uh, renegade way in, um, in, in quite high up structures? What's it like for you to then sit down with him and, and to interview him?
1: Well, by that time, I feel that Kim and I sort of knew each other better. I mean, it took me a couple of years to get the interview with him. And I was never sure if I was going to get it. I kind of snuck in when he was public and started filming while he was on the road with the internet mana, his political career. So, obviously, that was open to the media. So I got to know him and talked about what I wanted to do in the film. Um, But Kim knew the film would have to be independent and also be seen to be independent. So there was a kind of degree of... There has to be a degree of trust, in a way. But there's no... He certainly couldn't control it editorially. So, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult working with all documentary subjects in that regard. I mean, you're always asking for their trust without guaranteeing anything. and mm. So it's kind of a complex dance, in a sense. But I think Kim... Kim knew I wanted to drill down and look at some of those deeper issues, and I think in the end he must have thought, well, it was better he'd be part of it than not be part of it. And there are a few films around, particularly around controversial internet personalities, where they've never granted access, and it becomes more of a filmmaker's journey trying to get to them and using archive and you know using narration. So that I did have to consider that as an option in case he didn't agree. But I was also quite determined that I would get an interview with him. So by the time we did sit down, I was pretty prepared, so I had very specific questions. It was quite late in the edit, so that was also a, something of a concern because <laughs> we couldn't like restructure the whole thing. So I was pretty aware of where I felt in the kind of somewhat in the flexible edit structure we had where. Where we needed him and where he would be really compelling, so I didn't go in although it was a si- we had a, it was a six hour interview in the end over two days wow. so it was very long, so we had a lot of material so I did try to cover all the bases really, both in terms of biography but also the issues, legal issues, but I was also aware in the film structure where I felt he would really contribute um so that was really the process. And luckily we didn't have to tear the whole edit to ribbons and start <laughs> again. <laughs> so that was good.
0: Just before we do, do wrap up, um, I, I'm curious, you know, as, a, as someone who is a film um, teacher, academic, What are some of the things that you try and instill in in your students in early career, filmmakers, um, any anecdotes or or, um, principles of filmmaking?
1: Well, quite often I talk to them about the idea, because, you know, content is king in a way, but I say, you know, because some students get anxious, although most of them come up with really good ideas, but they have to be ideas that are going to be suitable to the context. Like I say to them, for me, you have to make a 10-minute documentary over a... 12 to 14 week period so you know you can't do the history of globalization you know you're going to have to think of something that's proportionate that you can do and that will satisfy me in a sense because I'm the one that's going to be grading it so similarly you're working in a context you know what is your audience likely to be interested in have there been works made about this before is it likely to get funding because even though you know it's much easier to get your hands on good equipment these days there's still a lot of labour involved, and you know, as you make stuff that's more ambitious, you are going to start to want to work with, you know, professional mixers and DOPs and so forth. Um, so one thing is the idea, and how you, you know, ideas have their time, and you just have to be. The more experienced you get, it's almost like an intuition of what will work or not. The other thing I often say to them is, you know, try to have more than one string to your bow because it is quite difficult to be a producer-director, as much in terms of this, you know, it's competitive to get funding, but also it does take a certain personality. You know, I've had many talented students who just sort of fell by the wayside because it was just all too difficult. So I often think, you know, when I'm teaching production classes at least, I say to students, you might find you really like editing or you really like being a production manager or you might like grading you know, try to develop craft-based skills as well because that will help you even in your producing and directing as well. Um, Otherwise, I do emphasize ethics too because I think ethics in documentary is very important. I mean, that makes documentary hard because you are dealing with real people and real circumstances and that can have consequences. You know, with drama, you can fire someone, an actor, if you don't get on or, I mean, like Tom Cruise just broke a bone or something so they've had to stop the production for three months yeah. but you know usually if it's not Tom Cruise you can perhaps find someone else but with documentary I mean had Kim not granted the interview it probably wouldn't be the film that it is um, so you know you're dealing with a kind of power relationship with your subjects but you also have to understand that they are giving you their time that there might be implications that they might say something on film that might be Bite them in future years, and that you have to be mindful of that. Mm. So, I guess those are some of the lessons I talk to them about. Also, finding a form that's appropriate to the subject. Um, I, you know, because I also teach academically, I always teach a lot of documentary history, and so we look at the kind of different subgenres, if you like, um, as they've developed over the century, mm. the century and a bit. Um, Yeah,
0: And how do you personally um, define when one of your projects or how how has this idea evolved of of when it's a success or when you can consider it to be that, that, that film worked?
1: I think to some degree you have to be happy with it because success is one of those really intangible things. I mean, had I been a young person looking at myself today, I'd probably think I'm fairly successful really but i don't think you ever feel success like that mm. and you get onto that kind of the success thing and i think it can be quite crippling in some ways because there's always more successful people and i try not to be motivated by competition or envy or those sorts of things i find quite counter creative really so um, so generally i'm um, provided I mean, I like getting good critical responses. I mean, none of my films have been huge money spinners, which I think sometimes is part to do with distribution, but, you know, my work's not particularly commercial. Um, My more upbeat films do do better, you know, so clearly people do like kind of nice stories in a way, (laughs) positive stories, um, rather than all that dark human rights stuff. Um, So... Yeah, so I, I think measurement of success is that. I mean, I, I also, you know, obviously being an educator, I think I really want to provide brain food as well, you know, to make people think, but also to engage them. So that's an important part of the process for me as well.
0: Mm. Well, I think um, I think Kim dot com is is very engaging. Um, I, I certainly enjoyed it, and good luck for the. Um, the first screening this evening at myth there's another screening on saturday the 19th
1: yes that's right it's at 4 p.m yeah yeah and one of the keynotes I'm not key one or two i'm not <laughs> sure which one
0: and you're also uh speaking at the um the tech talks uh on yeah that's Friday. right yeah yeah, yeah yeah cool
1: so i don't i mean i feel a bit of an interloper because i'm not a particularly, t- I mean, I'm quite technical, but I'm not a coder or yeah. anything like that, or a VR person. So, um, but I guess I have a bit of a sort of sociological, historical analysis now on the on the whole field. So maybe I can contribute in that way.
0: Mm. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this interview. I end uh, all of my interviews, Annie, with one question. The question is, what makes you silly?
1: Oh, wine. wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: What do you have a propensity towards when you drink wine?
1: Oh, a good New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, yeah? Yeah, <laughs> probably my preference. But, um, you know, something that's actually made me laugh a bit yeah. recently has been Twitter. I think because of the economy of the language,
0: mm.
1: I quite like it.
0: It's quite ridiculous at times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Annie.
1: Thank you.